The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Morning. Good morning, welcome uh, to Gospel City Church. Uh, this doesn't really look like Triune Center KL, uh, but I'm really glad that we're in Bandar Rimbayu. Uh, I was saying to Andy, I think this morning, we finally get to experience what the Rimbayu guys go through every week to get together with us in the city. Um, and that's, I think it's a nice change. Uh, I quite like this place. Um, it's a nice view, it always is a nice school. Um, so yeah, it's good to be back together, all together again. Um, and I really enjoyed singing in different place. Okay, so let's let's get into the sermon because there's uh, it's quite a lot to talk about. Uh, also, sorry, if you are new here, uh, if you're wondering, like I've never seen you guys around here before. We we are a church that usually meets in uh, Eco City in Bangsar, um, and our venue is not available. That's why we're here. But yes, you are very welcome among us. Um, and okay, so we are in week two of our sermon series. Uh, it's called The King's Speech. You might know a movie by the same name, <laughs> uh, but I promise that wasn't what we were thinking about. Um, and this is where we look at what Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Now, in a moment, I'm going I'm to read the text and pray, um, but before that, let's think about last week. All right. So the context for this series is, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has already announced what he calls the kingdom of heaven, all right? This, this term kingdom of heaven is, is thrown around a lot. I should say the term kingdom is thrown around a lot. Um, but what it means is that heaven's king has arrived on earth, right? God's rule is going to begin to be made visible on earth. And last week, Chris showed us how citizens of God's kingdom, that's us, all right, live out a certain dynamic, certain values, um, and not because these values are the qualification for us to enter the kingdom, or it's not what keeps us in the kingdom, but because it's who we are. Okay? They, they have, these values have become our identity. We are meek, we, we are pure in heart, and as citizens of the king, we are people who have already received God's approval, right? Our hearts have been changed, and, and we live out these new kingdom values, and therefore we're called blessed. So that's where we've been, and today we're going to look at how Jesus continues after giving these kingdom values, and we're going to be turning to this issue of righteousness and the law. And in a sense, from these words, we're going to get the challenge, how righteous are you? Right? So let me read the passage for us, and then I'll pray. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, the passage should be up on the screen. For you to follow along. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Right. So if, or if you're more digitally inclined, you can swipe there. Um, right. Everyone's there? Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light 
to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven do not think that i have come to abolish the law of the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly i say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished therefore Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, I pray uh, that as we look at this text today, um, Help us to have hearts that are good soil, that, that take, receive the word, meditate, grow. I pray that you would plant it deep in our hearts so that like we sang this morning, we would be able to sing week in and week out that Jesus is better. That is the desire of our hearts. Um, so we humbly ask you, Spirit, to move in us, um, to move us to action where it is needed, to move us in a sense of changing our hearts where heart change is needed. So we humble ourselves to you this morning and we ask for your help, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The question that follows from last week is so what? So what that we are citizens? So what if we are poor in spirit? So what if we are meek? So what if we are merciful? So what if we are peacemakers? So what if we are pure in heart? We've been made righteous. So what? And we're going to answer that question as we look at the text today. We're going to see, so what? What does righteousness produce? What is righteousness for? And we're going to look at it as Christian righteousness witnesses to the world. And that's in verses 13 to 16. Christian righteousness doesn't invalidate the law. And finally, in verse 20, we want to put ourselves under the question, how righteous are you? How righteous are we? Right? We want to turn that mirror to examine ourselves. So Christian righteousness witnesses to the world. Christian righteousness does not invalidate the law. And we want to ask the question, how righteous are we? All right, so firstly, let's look at how Christian righteousness witnesses to the world. Now, these verses about salt and light have been repeated by thousands and thousands of Christians for a couple thousand years, right? Like these are well-known verses. Even people who aren't Christians know these verses. But what is it about? And I think it's helpful to remember to notice how Jesus speaks in the same way in these verses about salt and light that he does in verses 3 to 11. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So in last week's text, Jesus said, here's the kind of righteousness your life will show because you're my followers. Here's the identity you already have as a citizen of my kingdom. But in these verses, he's saying, when you live those values out as a citizen, here's the effect you have on the world. Now, once again, I think it's worth mentioning that these verses are not primarily prescriptive. They are descriptive. And because they're descriptive of us as citizens of God's kingdom, it means either you are in the kingdom 
or you're out. There's no in-between. You don't say, you know, I think I'm probably a Christian because I'm deciding on the way there. Either you trust Jesus and your life will show these values or you don't. So let's not anyone get the idea that, oh, you know what, I'm not a Christian, but I think I can imitate this, right? Because these dynamics lived out by Christians are reflective of who they inherently are. Salt cannot help but be salty. Light cannot help but shine and light up the darkness. It is our inherent identity as Christians. And so you can't imitate these values and then say, looks like I'm a Christian, right? You can't renovate yourself into God's kingdom, right? So we don't want any confusion here. What we are looking at is the description of Christians and the effect that Christian lives have on the world. Now, as we go through this section, we're going to see a combination of effects, the effects of our lives that display these values, and how we're meant to live out our new lives. So if you look at the first word, you, all right, we see the first point. We're supposed to do this together. Okay, the you in these verses is not to one particular person. Jesus doesn't just say, you, Ikan, no, in a sense, he does, he's saying to all disciples, but in this context, he's speaking to all of his disciples as they're gathering around him. We are salty together, we are light together. And later Jesus will say, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. So the line from Jesus to the disciples to you and I today, sitting here, is very, very clear. GCC, we should treat it as if Jesus were standing in front of us in this very room, saying these words to us, that together, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And that means, listen, there's no such thing as a solo salty Christian, right? You don't walk out of here and say, huh, you know what? Since Jesus said, congratulations, you are now righteous, I guess I don't need anyone else, right? That's not how this works. The kingdom has citizens. We are a kingdom of citizens together. No one Christian has all the gifts. No one Christian has all the right words. No one Christian has the consistency of character. If that's you, you can put up your hand right now, right? I, I'm always consistent in my, like, we're not, right? We all need help. We all need encouragement and we all need correction, we're going to get things wrong, and we're going to need people to point that out and say, hey, you need to get back on track. You will not get that trying to be salt alone. We are salt together. But let's, let's talk effects. Okay, so what does salt do? Right? Why is being salty a good thing? Now, if you spend any amount of time on social media, uh, you will know that nowadays being called salty isn't exactly a compliment Alright, if you get called salty, it's because someone's trying to tell you that you get upset over small things. Alright, so if someone else calls you salty, um, please don't think that they're complimenting you. <laughs> uh, but, but Jesus offers, if Jesus says you're salty, it's good. Right, now instead of getting into all the details, I know we could, we could talk for like hours about like, oh, how are all the different ways that salt is used. But let's just focus on, on how the point is, salt makes things better. Right? Whether it helps to preserve food or to enhance taste, all that's true, right? There's so many metaphors we go with. But the point is, salt makes things better wherever it is. And notice that the assumption here is that we are involved in people's lives, right? In order for salt to be useful, it has to be in the thick of things. Uh, one illustration I heard that was very helpful is when you get a steak, 
you don't eat it and say, man, that salt is amazing. Where did you get it from? You don't. You say, oh, that steak was awesome, right? And so the salt is in the thick of things, and wherever it is, it makes things better, right? And in a sense, that kind of takes your focus off of yourself, right? Um, you just serve your purpose. But let's get really personal, right? Really personal. That means wherever you are, whether you're a teacher, an engineer, I think one of the few engi- one of the engineers is outside today, uh, Joel, uh, or you're a mother, or you're doing admin, or you're handing keys over to new unit owners, or you're facing cancer, you live lives that make your spheres of life, the people you know, better. The people around you are more joyful, are more encouraged, are more challenged by the gospel, are drawn to God because of you. Wherever you are, as you live out your meekness, you use the strength and power you have. Remember last week? Rightly, you don't abuse your power, but you use it to lift others up. As you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you push back against corruption. We've seen that in the news, haven't we? And exploitation. If you are a C-suite or you are on the way to be a C-suite, how are you going to make the lives of your employees better? Or if you're a manager of a team, as you live out purity of heart, people notice that there doesn't seem to be any pretension around you, but you're transparent and honest about things. When you're suffering, you don't try to act as if everything's fine. You say, here's the reality. And people trust you. They open up to you. They share their struggles and you bear their burdens. As you strive to be peacemakers, conflict doesn't seem to last very long around you, but reconciliation seems to be the norm. You are the salt of the earth. Is your life wonderfully salty? If Think of it this way. If your non-Christian family or your non-Christian friend or colleague were sitting in this very hall and they were looking right at you and they were hearing these words, would they say, oh, that's exactly right. Now I know why my friend this Christian is like that. Or are they going to say, what? Hmm, seems to be a disconnect here. And I think that's a, that's a good question to think about, right? And if that feels a bit, if you feel a bit of pressure, I think that's a good thing. But what about light? We are the light of the world. Why specifically light? There's a lot of light in this room. What's that all about, right? And here I think it's helpful to look ahead to Paul's language in Romans 1, 21 and Ephesians 4, 18, right? Uh, Paul describes the world around us as being spiritually darkened. And then later in Romans 1, Paul goes on to explain how this spiritual darkness works itself out in deeds that are evil. The truth is, the people around you who don't trust in Jesus are ignorant of the spiritual reality that they are not right with God. And so they live accordingly. And God, according to Romans 1, allows them to go their own way. How do we change that? In what way are we light? And I love how one commentator puts it. He says, for one thing, your presence will help to expose the evil and the darkness of this world. And you will find that you are not particularly popular for it. You will illuminate dishonest practices in business, gossip, loose morals, corruption in local politics, 
racial prejudice, greed, selfishness and, selfishness and other things. And they will appear darker even to non-Christians because of what you reveal of the holy character of Jesus. You see, what he's saying is, as you live out this bright beatitude life of imitating Jesus, you begin to provide greater and greater contrast against the darkness of this world. And people begin to see the darkness for what it is. You can just imagine in those days where there were no skyscrapers, there were no lights, there was no electricity. If you're a traveler in the middle of the night, and I think this might be what Jesus had in mind about being a city on a hill, right? Imagine that you haven't reached home in time. Night has fallen. It's dark. There's no light to guide you. Though you're familiar with the path, and then as you round the bend, you see this bright city with its lights lit, its lamps burning. What does that do to you? That gives you hope. That pushes back the darkness. It tells you where to go. Are you that to people who are in spiritual darkness and maybe they don't even realize it? And yet, this light of ours isn't just light in the midst of darkness, though that's what it is. It's a light that lights up a room. But also, think of yourselves as this giant signpost. Okay, maybe it's a bit of a weird metaphor, but a giant signpost that lights up in the dark. People see it in the darkness, but you don't just light it up. You're pointing at something. You're giving direction. You're a city on a hill. Because Jesus says in verse 16, look at it, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The works of righteousness that we do that lights up the darkness in this world serve to point people to the Father. Now let's quickly apply this. Now, firstly and most obviously, what do you do? Do these works of righteousness, right? Jesus is saying, this is who you are, so let's, let's live according to what he says. And, and, and if your life is bright, and you're like, even if you say, hey, you know, my scorecard's looking quite good, right? Shine brighter, right? Live more like your king, let there be no ceiling to our obedience and say, ah, now I'm off the hook, right? There, it's not a question of percentage. It's not a question of B or A star. There is no ceiling to our obedience. And secondly, notice how Jesus assumes that the light of Christians is before others. It's kind of similar to the idea of, of salt, right? In other words, there is no such thing as a completely private faith Christian. This concept should not exist in our minds, right? Do the people around you have any idea that you're a Christian? I mean, if you think about it, how are people going to give glory to a God they have never heard of? They need to hear it from you. This is not a one, two step process. Your witness of good works and your proclamation of the gospel needs to go hand in hand. They need to hear it from you. You are a signpost. You cannot help but give light and point people to God and talk about Jesus Christ at the same time. So let's do that well. You are the light of the world. And yet with all that said, Jesus suddenly goes into this next section talking about the law. 
seems like a strange pivot. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And by the law and prophets, what he means is the whole Old Testament. Well, why? Here's why. Let's look at how Christian righteousness doesn't invalidate the law. Okay, so look at verses 17 to 19. Now, it will help if we step back and frame everything that's been happening. What's been happening? Well, Matthew 4, 17, before the text that I was going to start, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Matthew 4, 19, Jesus says to the disciples, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 4, 23, And he went all throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And like we saw last week, Jesus declares his disciples as blessed, and he tail ends the Beatitudes by saying what? Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, people are beginning to see these, this new thing breaking in, this kingdom of heaven, and it's like nothing they've ever seen before. And Jesus is at the center of all of this, but he's freely pointing to himself. He's not functioning the same way the prophets did, where they spoke the word of God and they were pointing back to God. He's pointing to himself. And he's been saying, because you follow me, you're blessed, you're righteous. So a person might listen to Jesus and then go, well, in that case, I guess all this law and prophet stuff is so yesterday. Right? Now that you're here, we find righteousness in you. Right? We don't need to care about the law. We used to get righteousness from keeping the law, but now it's redundant. We can leave that behind. This new thing invalidates the old thing. But Jesus' answer is very simple. No, it's not redundant. So let's explore why Jesus' kingdom does not signal the end of the law and what that means for us. Right? Now, firstly, Jesus says his relation to the law is not a matter of abolishment, but specifically fulfillment. Now, bear in mind at this point, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross and he hasn't risen again, right? The disciples are still relatively new in following this new rabbi, Jesus. And so they don't know what's to come, but we do, right? And yet what, they, what the disciples are seeing in the life of Jesus is the embodiment of laws, perfect obedience to the law. That's what they're seeing, right? We have the privilege of looking back, but at that point, what the disciples are seeing is they're seeing a man who follows the law of God perfectly, but they're not seeing itself the fulfillment of the law. Now, to have a clear theology of Jesus' fulfillment of the law, uh, firstly, it's going to take a long, long time, and we don't have forever. Um, well, I mean, we will in future, uh, but at least here, we, in this one, we don't have all the time, so uh, let's just look at Luke 24 first. Okay, I'll just read it for us. Um, Luke 24, as Jesus is walking along with his, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, and they don't realize that he's Jesus, the risen Jesus. They're kind of blurred. They don't recognize him, uh, and they're talking, you know, and, and Jesus says, what happened in Jerusalem? And the disciples are like, are you the only person who didn't know? Um, but eventually... Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, these disciples, in all the scriptures, 
the things concerning himself. And we don't have time to go through every single book of every genre in the Old Testament, but I think Hebrews chapter 10 brings this idea of fulfillment into sharp enough focus for us. So if you can turn to Hebrews 10, uh, please do. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 4 and 11 to 14. Sorry, I realize we don't have that up on the screen. Um, so Hebrews chapter 10, 1 to 4, 11 to 14. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, verse 11, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And what's going on here is the author of Hebrews is looking back at the Levitical sacrificial system, and he's saying these priests, you know, they offered the blood of bulls and goats, but it was never enough, because every year the priests would have to come back and do the exact same thing. And so imagine the Israelites doing this, watching this ritual year in and year out. They are going to be reminded every year that that sacrifice was not enough, not enough, not enough not enough, year in and year out, not enough, not enough. And it will go on for every year until Jesus. Enough. And if you think about it, why were the sacrifices instituted in the law? God gave the nation of Israel the law, do this, don't do that, right? Obey this law uh, because I'm your God but he knew that his people would never be able to keep the law perfectly. That's why sacrifices every year. And so he gives them the sacrificial system to put off his judgment with the blood of bulls and goats. And that's why verse 14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And if you're a Christian here, that's you. Jesus' fulfilling sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice. He's, he's completely taken away your sin. And in that sense, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And of course, we go through the whole law and every single law. But the point is, if we look at this, Jesus fulfills the law. He is the end of the law. The law doesn't terminate with Jesus. It culminates in Jesus. Now let's come back to Matthew 5. That's why Jesus says to the disciples, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the law rather than abolish it. Now, let's, let's move on. Now that we know the point of the law, Jesus has something to say about the continuity of the law. So in verse 18, Jesus says that not an iota or a dot will pass away until all is accomplished. Now, essentially what he's saying is there is not one bit of the law that somehow is made redundant. If you write on a piece of paper and you leave it for 20 years, I assure you it's going to look a lot more faded. But Jesus is saying, 
not the law. Not one bit will pass away. But everything in the law is profitable to us to teach us about God, His character and His demands, and so it will be till the end of time. So what does this mean for us? Look at verse 19. Jesus says, essentially, don't let yourself off the hook. And definitely, don't teach others to relax the law. Instead, live in line with the law, live in line of who God is, and teach others to do the same. Teach them what this holy God's demands are. And we, but we need to approach this in the same way we approach the Beatitudes. This is not a conversation about are you a Christian or not. This is about conversation of how obedient you are as a Christian. Because Jesus says, whoever relaxes the law and teaches others to relax them will be called least in the kingdom, and those who obey and teach others to obey are great in the kingdom. You may be called least, you may be called great, but you're still in the kingdom. This is a matter of Christian obedience not justification. I know some of you are thinking, all right, but you know, there are some pretty specific laws in the Old Testament. You know, what do I do about the laws about crops and harvesting? Any farmers here? And you're like, what do you do about that? What about the Levitical prohibition about wearing clothes of different materials? I'm pretty sure I've I'm, I'm wearing clothes of different materials, right? Uh, and I'm not a farmer, right? So w- how do we work that out? How do we think about the law now that Jesus has fulfilled it? How do we work out which laws still apply to us in the same manner um, and how each law is changed or transformed in light of Christ? I'm not going to give you a long answer. Go read and find out. Ask other people in this church gather around scripture, discuss, think, disagree, ask an elder, read different resources. Nobody said understanding scripture was easy, but Jesus did promise us in John 16, 13, that the spirit of truth will come and he will guide you into all truth. Right? The spirit is eager to teach us about the very words that he inspired. Pray, ask for help, gather around scripture. I think this is where we can turn to more specific application. The fact that there is no short answer to this question should tell us something. We have to be diligent in studying Scripture. Doing theology is not only for professors, though we have a couple in this church. All of us have to do theology. You have a view of God and you have a view of the Bible, whether you think so or not. The only question is whether you will view God correctly or you will read whether or not you will read the Bible correctly. You will do it correctly and accurately or you will do it way off or a little bit off. Let's do it correctly. Let's read and learn about who God is and how he wants us to live correctly. And that's why we have started equip groups on biblical interpretation. I know most of us have joined, but let's be enthusiastic and good learners. And secondly, I think there's something to be said about trusting scripture right if jesus says that not one bit of the law this law that was given thousands of years ago not one bit of it will pass to the end then the truths that we learn now were true of god in his world then and they're true of god in his world now and they will continue to be true our god is not fickle he does not waver you know he, he doesn't his word is objectively true for all time and we can trust it 
our God is not a fickle God. So let's take a step back and look look at what we recovered. So the righteous values that we live out as followers of Jesus witness to a watching world and they show us, they show the world the glory of the Father. Our righteousness does not mean that the law is redundant for us, but Christ has fulfilled the law and we obey the law. But now we've got a shock coming for us because Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 20, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's put ourselves under the question, how righteous are you? How righteous are we? Now, first of all, we need to understand who were the scribes and Pharisees and what were they doing in terms of righteousness? Now, the scribes and Pharisees were groups of religious elites who knew the law of God extremely well. All right? But one of the things specifically that they did was they added on laws that they thought were necessary over and above the law of God, and they would add on laws that were passed on from previous generations of religious elites. It's some, what you might call oral tradition, right? This idea of like best practices. They're not in God's law, right? But, but why did they do that? If it's not in God's law, why, why add them on, right? Are they just, you know, being very extra? Well, you have to understand that keeping the law was everything to these religious elites, right? They thought that their continued status before God was dependent on how consistently they kept God's law. So by adding on these laws, they were doing something like this. If there's a cliff, you don't want to fall over the cliff. What do you do? You put guardrails at the edge, right? Not these guys. They would put a fence 20 meters before the cliff and then put up a sign, don't walk over the cliff, right? They, want, they wanted to make absolutely completely certain that there was no chance that they would break any of the laws. So, I don't know if I'm going to offend some people here with this example. Um, it, it's completely intentional. It's kind of like, you know, Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why take a chance? Why take a chance? Let's just not drink any alcohol at all. That way there's no chance, right? So for example, well, okay, I'm not going to give an example. I think that's, that's good enough. I think some, some people are, yeah, that, that hit home, right? You're like, oh, wow. Okay, but essentially, when it comes to righteousness in the sense of keeping the law, these guys were it. These guys were the experts. And yet Jesus says, unless your righteousness doesn't go further than theirs, you aren't getting into the kingdom of heaven. Can you think of how shocking this would have been for the disciples? I mean, you know, later on in, in the Gospels, Jesus does criticize and lambast the Pharisees for their, you know, for their hypocrisy. But here, he's saying, you know what? Actually, you need righteousness that goes beyond theirs. People who are held in such high esteem, the disciples would have been shocked at a loss. Now, we're not going to look too far ahead because this is the coming week sermon. But if you look at some of the verses to come, Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said, but I say, okay, so for example, in verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or verse 27, uh, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And so you could almost say that Jesus is raising the bar. He's saying, yes, you can choose not to kill someone, that's great, but that doesn't mean you didn't break the sixth commandment. Because it's not about external restraint or action. It's about the heart. Or I should say, it's not only about external restraint or action, but your heart. So if you're someone who gets angry with people on a daily basis, what you cannot do is you can't wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, congratulations, you kept the sixth commandment for one more day. Because you missed the point of the law. It's about the heart. Because think back to last week's sermon as well. Christian obedience is inside out not outside in. Our righteousness comes from what's in our hearts. So you see, it's two very different things for me to say to my fiancé, we're engaged, I guess we have to go on a date. Or, you are so lovely, let's go on a date. If it's the first one, I'm not getting married next year, I can tell you that, she's not here today, but I, like that's cancelled, but it's not the first one, right? Because to, to make obedience to God's commands only about external restraint is to miss the heart behind the law. Obedience to God's commands cannot be any less than external restraint or action, but it is so much more. Citizens of God's kingdom live out obedience from a changed heart. And you need to recognize that no amount of white-knuckled restraint or extra measures can stop you from breaking the law if your heart is not changed. But let's ask one thing. Isn't Jesus contradicting himself? I mean, think about it. On one hand, how could Jesus say to the disciples, you need a righteousness that exceeds even the scribes and the Pharisees with all their extra measures, nothing short of perfect external and internal obedience, and then say, also, blessed are you, you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you who are merciful, you who are meek, you who are peacemakers, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Because the disciples were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, have you read the Gospels? Have you looked at Peter? Right? And Jesus is saying that they're in the kingdom. But they also need to have righteousness that exceeds even the scribes and Pharisees. How? Or what about us? We certainly didn't have hearts that love to obey the law. Some of us had never heard of Jesus. How were our hearts changed? How did you... How did we get to where we were, where, where we are? How can hearts that do not know God, do not love Him, and do not want to obey His law, or at very best, obey the law to make ourselves feel good, that we are moral, that we can compare ourselves to the person on the left and on the right and say, you know, I'm morally better. How, how did that heart change happen? And the answer is, look at who is saying it. Look at the person who is saying it. The person who is pronouncing that the standard of the law is beyond mere obedience is the same person who pronounces that the disciples are citizens of the kingdom and that they are salt and light. It is the king of the kingdom and it is on his authority that he can say such a thing. But is that it? Is it just authority? I override X or I override Y? It can't be. It can't be a matter of overriding because you need real change. How does the king change hearts? 
If you look in Matthew 27, this king who throughout his life perfectly obeyed the law of God and loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength would go to the cross and be treated, get this, as someone who completely broke the law of God. And he does this for the sake of people who actually did break God's law and actually don't love the Lord their God. But through his sacrifice, he offers them, he offers us something we don't deserve. See, what changes hearts is mercy and grace. When you look at how the standard for entering the kingdom is not just external action, but from the heart righteousness, nothing short of perfection, you should reach the point of despair. You should reach a point of saying, I give up. That's what it's meant to do. Because if there's any bit of you that's still confident in your own righteousness, you are not ready to enter the kingdom. Because that's not how the kingdom works. So you need to give up on your righteousness. One preacher puts it, you don't just need to repent of what you do right, of your morality. You, you don't just need to repent of your immorality. You need to repent of your morality. Your efforts are actually a way of thumbing your nose to God and saying, I've got this. I don't need you. You repent of your immorality and your morality because your morality, as Paul says, is like filthy rags. They're an attempt at us trying to prove ourselves and live up to a law that we cannot. So have you reached the point of despair? If you haven't, you need to think and pray really hard and think about how you are not righteous in and of yourself. The only way into the kingdom is by the pronouncement of the king, the same king who would go on to pay the price of the disciples and pay the price for us as we look back at the cross. So let me ask you again, how righteous are we? If we have learned to answer, if you have learned to answer, my righteousness, not at all. Yet I am righteous only through the mercy of the king. Then you're in the kingdom. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. If we have given up on our righteousness and received the righteousness offered by the king. And we can be those things because obedience in God's command is no longer a duty. It's a delight. The price for disobedience and failure to live according to the law has been paid on our behalf. We are free to leave, live these, this beautiful, bright, and salty lives. Bring the values of the kingdom to bear in wherever you are, to whoever you meet, as a witness to the glory of the Father and the Son. So let me close with the words of a Chinese house church pastor. If you think your morals are worth mentioning before God, you are wretched. We must realize that we are unlovable, that we have sinned greatly before God. All fall short of the glory of God, including you and me. But the affection of Jesus Christ loves the unlovable. God died for such unlovable people, and such great love turns around the lives of us who have received such grace. Would you love and serve your king? Let's pray. Father, we are not righteous in and of ourselves. Um, and though we have received your righteousness, even today, our hearts need change. I thank you that by your spirit, you have changed our hearts. We are on a new course. We have turned away from sin. And you call us righteous. You call us 
blessed, but Lord, we repent because often we don't live the life that you call blessed. We don't, we're not diligent in loving that life, loving a life that pleases you. And we ask humbly that you would continue to change us because to live under the law of the God of the universe is the best thing that we can do. Obedience is for our good and also to lead other people who are spiritually darkened and blind to see the light and the glory of you, Father. And we want to do that well because we are a church on mission. Help us to shine. Help us to be salty in the very best of ways. So we need your help. And thank you for using us. I thank you that like we sang, we heard this sound of life that called us out of the grave and we are risen in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. You are our God and we are your people. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.